Welcome back to the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast, where we aim to bring you the latest evidence and research to enable you to perform at your best, prevent injury and recover well. The Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast is brought to you by Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre. I'm Anthony Lance, physiotherapist, co-founder of SSPC and your host for today. Thanks for tuning in to episode 16. We were lucky to have one of Australia's best triathletes, Luke Bell, appear in our previous episode. And today we get the privilege of getting another great triathlete, swimmer and endurance athlete on the program in John Van Wyss. We'll get to hear about his amazing feats and we'll gain some insight also into both the physical and mental aspects of participating in events that really do push the human body to unbelievable limits. And in John's case, in one incident, actually almost killed him. But just before getting into today's episode, if you're enjoying our podcast, please don't forget to hit the follow button on our home site and that will make sure you don't miss an episode. And it will be great if you've got any comments or feedback to leave them on that site too. But now let's get straight into episode 16. Well, it's fantastic to have today's guest on board who, when you speak to many people who know him, describe him as one of the greatest endurance athletes of all time, if not the greatest. And when you have a bit of a look through what he's done, you can see why people talk about him like this. So a couple of the achievements are youngest and fastest swimmer across Port Phillip Bay, fastest Australian to cross the English Channel, multiple winner of the Bloody Big Swim, which is an 11k swim from Frank here in Melbourne. Um, Lots of big famous tries in the late 90s and early 2000s, which included New Zealand and uh, winning the half Ironman. Um, Also Foster, Hawaii, Germany, Lake Placid in New York, many of the tries that uh, people would be familiar with. Um, He actually won the Melbourne Marathon 20 to 25 year age group um, in a great marathon time of two hours, 39 minutes. He's done a double crossing of the English Channel in under 20 hours. He's won the New York to Manhattan Island Marathon Swim, which is a 48k swim three times. Um, and the main thing I want to talk about today, well, it's the English Channel, but also the uh, the famous Arch to Arc Enduro Man Triathlon, um, which he smashed the world record in. So welcome, John Van Wyss. Oh, thanks, Anthony. Thanks for the, uh, for the big pump up. We've got a lot of people on the payroll when they say all that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything I missed that's significant? And out of what I have mentioned, and I, I want to go through a couple more of them in depth, obviously, but is there anything in that list that really stands out as your number one thing? Oh, they're all they're all good in different ways. Um, the New Zealand half iron man I was wrapped with because that was actually my first um, ever big big win. And um, yeah, I was, uh, I was I had a Kiwi half Kiwi mate uh, Andrew Shannon who lives in Melbourne who was my training mate and. We end up uh, staying in Queenstown uh, with with his uh, mum, so we had a good little trip, and we went over and uh, won the, won the half Ironman there. So I was wrapped. Then I came back and I won the state uh, Olympic distance, uh, and then a few weeks later I went back to New Zealand and um, was first Aussie home. Went eight hours thirty two and went head to head with Cameron Brown for a while, and so I had a really good uh, really good month there. So that that was a good period of my life. Uh, I remember that. That was uh, good times. and yeah. uh, So you did man. the half and the full within a month of each other? Yeah, approximately within a month, I reckon. I, I, I came back and I did the Olympic distance, which is not really my distance, and I, I won that. Um, so I won the state title for that. And, um, and then I thought, oh, geez, I'll, I'll go into uh, New Zealand. I already entered New Zealand, sorry. So then I went over to New Zealand. I was quite quite um, confident. Um, I got off the bike with the lead pack with Cameron Brown and probably about 10 others, Scott Balance, um, there were quite a few um, Ironman winners. It was a really good field. And uh, I dropped Cameron Brown the first 5K. I ran too hard. Oh, Peter right. Sandvang broke the bike course record. So he was about, he was about 10, 15 minutes in front of us. He smashed the bike. So we're all chasing Peter Sandvang. I dropped Cameron the first 5K. I went too crazy. And then he caught me at 5K. And then we ran together to about 15K with uh, Stefan Holzner as well, who, as, as well. He'd won two or three Ironmans. And then those boys dropped me. And uh, Cameron ended up catching Peter Sandvang with two kilometres to go. And that was, he, he won that. That was his first ever New Zealand Ironman win. And he got second in Hawaii that year. And um, we were all catching, uh, I nearly caught Stefan Holzner. and he ended up beating me by about, I think, 10 seconds. So I ended up coming fourth, but I was uh, first Aussie home and it was the fastest 
uh, time by an Aussie in the Ironman that year. So I had a really good um, few months then. Yeah, so yeah. I was on well. cloud nine at that stage. That's amazing. Um, let's um, let's just go back a bit uh, first. Like you're a local Melbourne boy, and it's a question I ask a lot of the athletes I get on this podcast: is you know what were you good at early, and and do you think that you, you know, are born to find your way into tries, or did you just like swimming and and train and get better at it? So how did it all begin? Oh, I kind of fell into the um the triathlons, Anthony. I was uh, as a kid, um. I, my parents had me in swim squad, so I was doing a lot of swimming. Um, then we got into the life-saving, the local life-saving here. We, ha- we have a strip of water called uh, Port Phillip Bay. Yep. Uh, so I was doing all the bay life-saving, and they were great times. Like I, I ended up having a key to the Black Rock Life-Saving Club because you know, we were heavily involved, and you know, we had some great times there and had a, had a lot of good, good races in the life-saving. And uh, Then I was, um, what was I doing? Then I was doing marathon swimming, so... Some across Port Phillip Bay as a lead into the English Channel, and we swam the English Channel. Well, I actually did make the English Channel the first time. I had to get resuscitated. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I went back the next year and did the Channel, and then um, I got sick of doing all the swimming because the, the training was pretty intense. So that's when I, um, the next year I, I did a full um, turnaround, went to running. So then I went to marathon running, and um, which was totally different. You know, which gave me you know, something to chase, something totally different. And I, did the Melbourne Marathon. That was my first marathon. So I had all my mates out watching, and I was with the leaders at um, probably halfway, even 10k. I was with the leaders. So I went out close to 30 minutes. So I was basically running flat out the first 10k because all my mates were watching. But I ended up blowing up, and I ended up running the 239, which in hindsight, for your first marathon, was pretty good. But at the time, I was devastated. I thought, oh god, all these people beat me. I should be a better athlete than this, and. I was hoping to make the um, the Sydney Olympics for the marathon, but I just just wasn't good enough. So, so then because um, I'm a swim coach, I coach a lot of triathletes, and I was I was winning a few aquathons on weekends for prize money. So some of my triathletes would say, "Oh, you just beat this triathlete, you know who that is," and said, "No, no, no." So, so they they let me a bike. Two of my mates, two of my um, triathlete mates, let me a bike, and uh, they took me down to the velodrome in Edithville, and I thought, "Oh yeah, I'll be able to beat these guys on the bike." And they were toying with me. They were talking to me while I was huffing and puffing, going, oh, you're going well. And I thought, geez, I, th- I thought I'd be able to just jump on the bike and do, do all right. So it took a few years and um, I got reasonably strong on the bike. The bike was always my weakness, but um, I got reasonably strong on the bike. And then I got sick of doing the Ironman. So then I went back to uh, marathon swimming. So I started racing around Manhattan, which is a really big uh, annual race. You, you swim around the whole Manhattan Island anti-clockwise. Yeah, right. You start at um, Battery Park opposite the Statue of Liberty and it's a race. So there's about 30 or 40 people in it, but you have to um, send a resume off and get selected. So everyone has a boat and a kayaker and the history on that island is just incredible. So I loved it. And you get a story in the New York Times and I got a bit of exposure back home with it. And So I was lucky, lucky enough to have um, three wins with that one. So I went back there a few times and did that. Um, then, then I went back to English Channel and I was actually going for a triple crossing, but I didn't get a very good window, so I ended up right. doing a double crossing, in, but in terrible conditions. And then I got sick of uh, the swimming again and the, the window came up for the Arch Sharks. So I thought I'll get back to the running, so I hadn't run for years. I uh, got back to the running and it, you know, at first it was a bit hard. I remember I was doing my first 50K training run. I ended up uh, walking home because my legs were stuffed, and you know, I was on on Beach Road where a lot of my um, a lot of my people I coach were bike riding. They could see me, you know, walking home. I think how embarrassing is this? Well, I ended up, you know, building the running up and started doing seventy k training runs and things like that. And, uh, and then the Art Shark was was after that. So just yeah. uh, just go from one sport to the next. You get sick of doing <laughs> one thing and. Yeah, you, you go back to to what you did previously. So was the obviously you've got a real affinity with Port Phillip Bay. Was was the bay crossing your first big swim? Oh no, I um, I I wanted to get out of school. I hated school, but I had to give my dad a good reason. And my yeah. sister was a very good marathon swimmer, and she was racing around Europe. She was dating um an Italian guy called Sergio Carandini, who's who was second in the world at the time. He was a magnificent swimmer. So uh, I, I uh, got out of school and uh, did a printing apprenticeship because my father was a printer. So yep. I didn't want to do printing. I just wanted to get out of school and take up marathon swimming. And so I, I had a season overseas and I had my big first race was a uh, race uh, called, if you swim from the island of Ponza back to the mainland, which was, I think, 43K. 
And the first I swam before them was probably 20K. There's a limited field. It was probably about 30 people. And you take, you take the ferry across the night before. And I remember being on the ferry and the ferry took over an hour and I'm looking back and I couldn't even see, you know, the land that we were taking off from. And I'm thinking, geez, the next morning I've got to swim back. You know, I've got to race yeah, these right. stars back. And uh, we have a dinner before and it was, I was thinking, oh, geez, what am I in for? Everyone's got their sponsored top on. And I was just, I was maybe 19 years old, a kid, you know, thinking, geez, what am I doing in this company? You know, they, these guys are too good for me. And it ended up being a really rough day. It was four, four six wins. And um, I, I just went out really hard. And I actually was in the lead for most of the way. And I was ahead of Sergio, um, my sister's boyfriend, who'd won the event six years in a row. Uh, but he always negative splitted it. But I was on I was on cloud nine, and initially um, the boatman the boatman there always want to get the best swimmer because it's very prestigious to have the have the first swimmer coming in. So when my boatman got me, they were devastated because they thought, oh, who's this guy? He's a no name. But then when I was in the lead, they got really excited, and they stopped feeding me. So right. I ended up getting I was in the lead, and Sergio was catching me storming storming back, and uh, they they started reducing my feeds. You know, and I was too young to talk back. And they're, they're just screaming in Italian, hurry up, hurry up. They're looking over the boat, seeing Sergio catch me, hoping they'd be first in. And he ended up catching me right at the end. And uh, like I said, it was terrible conditions. And um, we both ended up having to go to hospital. So they, whatever position you were after, after us was your official position. So if you were, you know, in fourth place and you were 5K from the finish, that was your position. They pulled everyone out because it was such... Oh, right. Wow. Yeah, because the first two people, you know, including Sergio, so who was sick. a legendary swimmer, had to go to hospital. And I, I was really low in sugar. So I remember being in the ambulance and I just wanted to sleep. And every time I closed my eyes, the ambulance, the, the paramedic would slap me across, across the <laughs> cheek. And I'm thinking, gee, that's a bit harsh. And then I worked out later is because, you know, if you, you can't go to sleep when you're so low on sugar, it's dangerous. But that, that kind of, that was my first big breakthrough race. And I got a $6,000 prize money in English sovereign gold coins. I don't know why they paid in gold coins, but, and that paid the rest of my trip. So I was front page of the local paper there. And, you know, the next night was the, was the uh, awards party. And I was like, you know, I came in, I was still a bit, uh, not, not hundred percent, but, I was like a rock star because I was like the young kid who nearly pulled it, nearly beat Sergio, who's, you know, won it six years in a row and was second in the world. And I reckon had he not trained with me leading into the event, he probably would have uh, given up and not chased me down because he knew he was the fastest swimmer than me in the pool. Like, he was a beast. Like, we were, we were training with the Italian Olympic team at that stage because this is 1992 in Florence, which is where, where he was living. And he was doing like 10 400s, leaving off the five, you know, the 430. Uh, and I'm leaving off the end of the five minutes. So he, yeah. he had more speed than me. Um, so I reckon had he, had he not been training with me in the pool leading in, he, he might've said, Oh, this guy's got too much lead. And I might've got a, might've fluked a win. But um, that was my big breakthrough um, swim, I reckon in, in my head. Yeah. Okay. And it's thank God I might have to ask you at the end, if you've ever swum in good conditions, because some of the ones we're about oh, to, yeah. to, to <laughs> chat about are uh, horrendous, but look, if we, if we get onto them, as I said, the, the ones that, that really fascinate me are the English channel, which we'll start with and on its own, it's a, obviously a massive challenge. But when we talk about the arch to arc, it's only, only one component of three. But um, so if we start with your English channel uh, crossings in isolation, so as an event in itself, like the water temperature there is what between 15 and 18 degrees so it's it's yeah. pretty cold that's a big factor to have to deal with isn't it yeah yeah well that's a big yeah absolutely anthony so at that stage i was i would have been 20 years old and i, and I, I was quite i was quite skinny then i uh, i was quite proud i still had stomach muscles yeah. showing then and i didn't want to lose didn't want to lose my um my, i didn't want to get fat so being fat in the English Channel is a big thing. You need a certain amount of body fat, depending on how long you think you're going to be in the water to, to survive the cold. But I thought, oh, I'll be tough enough. I'll just, you know, swim hard enough to generate heat and it won't get me. Um, so, so we swam across Port Phillip Bay first, and I reckon that was February as a training session. And that got massive exposure because we had Dawn Fraser on our boat. So my sister and I, um, we had a boat each, and we raced across Port Phillip Bay. And I got the record there and it got front page of the paper because we had Dawn with us. She always generated, you know, big, Public big press. City. So yep. we were hoping um, to be the first brother and sister to cross English Channel and break the world record time, which at that time was seven hours 40. And it, that had stood for, for 20 odd years. So, but when we got there, it was a real terrible window. It was like uh, windy every day and the water was probably 13, 14. 
Um, and like I said, I was a skinny kid. And I remember uh, a lot of the channel swimmers, you meet in Dover Harbour and you, and you train up and down there, which is about 1.5K in between the barriers where the ships leave. And I was getting cold, you know, just doing these training sessions. Thinking, oh, oh Jesus. So anyway, the day came and uh, we ended up having a bad day. And, uh, but I was flying along uh, about six hours in and um, I thought, yeah, I'll be right still. Uh, but you kind of, you just start falling asleep. There's nothing you can do. It's like, it's like trying to watch a movie late at night when you're tired and you end up, you know, falling asleep and you wake up the next morning and the telly's on. You don't know how it happened. Yeah. So were you that. aware of this? Like they say, you know, sometimes your mind's just so far gone. You, you've got no concept of what's happening, but were you, were you consciously aware of what was happening to you? Not really. Cause I stopped shivering, which is actually a bad sign. And, um, and I thought I was still going all right. And, I, and it was actually quite peaceful. I just remember waking up in the boat and Dawn had one of those silver space, uh, space blankets around me, giving him a hug. And, and I thought, oh, gee, what happened? And um, so I was, I was only 4K off um, France. Yeah, it was really rough conditions, but I was actually on really good pace. I was on pace to get the record. So I was really devastated. And my sister ended up getting a cross, which made it worse. And she got the fastest <laughs> crossing right. male or female for the year. So you and let you get, her down. Yeah. And so we were in the first brother, sister, and she got a Rolex watch because back then that was the channel was sponsored by Rolex. So the fastest crossing of the year got a Rolex with your time and name engraved on the back. So I was like, oh, I was devastated. And, you know, I thought, oh, I thought I was a better athlete now. I'm thinking, oh, geez, how did this happen? Because it, it just shows you how vulnerable you are. Dawn actually talked me into um, going back the next year. And the next year I put on 23 kilos of fat. Wow. So I looked terrible. Uh, I was eating like five Big Macs and things like that. <laughs> just eat until I was uncomfortable and I, and I cut my miles down in half. So I uh, wasn't burning as many calories in training. And the next year I went back, we had a beautiful summer. Like I probably had 20 plus degrees, flat conditions. Um, but I ended up missing the tide at the end because in the middle, I had to tread water for 12 minutes and let a Russian oil tanker, which was towing another tanker pass. Oh, really? So I ended up missing the tide right at the end. So I got the Australian record, but I would have got the world record. So I was kind of happy and unhappy at the same time that I got across, got the Australian record. But then you start thinking, geez, I could have got the world record. Um, so I guess you're never happy. God, that's just total bad luck though, isn't it? But um... oh, It's pretty common in the channel though. Like for everything to go right, the channel's notoriously uh, fickle. So yes. you hear these stories and like I said, it happens to a lot of people in the channel. And it makes me actually think of, um, I think it was called Super Size Me, that, that McDonald's ad. And like the 23 kilos, like in that show, the guy that was on that really struggled to lose weight when he, when he um, wanted to come off this diet. Like 23 kilos is massive. Did you, obviously yeah. you're, you're super fit and super active, but did you have any difficulty getting any of that weight off or how much comes off in the race? Nah, I lost it real quick, uh, Anthony. So, after that, I went round to, to Holland to visit my cousins. And I was like, I, I really cut my food down. I was only 21 at that stage. So the metabolism's still going. And I reckon I lost most of that by the time I got home. Uh, but if I did that now, it, it, I'd never get it off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it came off real, real quick. And I'm not sure how much, I wasn't in much stress in that swim. So I don't reckon I lost a lot of weight because it was quite an easy swim. Apart from missing the tide at the end. Beautiful conditions, flat conditions, sun on my back. I never got cold. Yeah, I okay. All day at that, that. The water was probably 16, so it was probably two or three degrees warmer than the year before. And like I said, there were no, no gale force winds. We had sun on our back. It was just a totally different swim. What's the bay here in Melbourne in the middle of winter, temperature-wise? Like, does oh, that prepare you? Anthony, I've, had, um, I've done probably 30 years now, and I reckon three years it's, it's got down to six. Oh, but God. generally, generally it's between seven and nine. It, it didn't get under nine this year. So, so because it, it's uh, Port Phillip Bay shallow water, it gets cold. Uh, it gets colder uh, than the ocean in winter and warmer than the ocean in summer because it's less water to heat up and cool down. Yeah. So it really depends on you know how many cold nights you get and also the cloud cover. Okay. Um, so this year it, it didn't get under nine. So it was quite a, quite a mild, uh, mild water temperature this this winter. So um, the the swim itself, the channel, when you look at the map, it's, uh, it says it's, a, I think it's a bit under 34K, but when you look at the route that's taken, it's far more than 34K, isn't it? Like it's amazing the, 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 the S-bend route that you need to take to get to the other side. Yeah, I mean, the tide's there. So you have a neap tide and a spring tide. So 
The neap tides are always the smaller tides. Spring tides are the, are the bigger tides when the moon and sun align. So, so, um, so basically, you think you're swimming a straight line, but the, the boat's snaking you across. Um, and, you, and you try and land on that tip of France. I think it's called Cape Grenade, which is the closest tip. But if you miss that, you're on a big tide, you've got to swim a lot further. So um, I have a theory that uh, the fastest times are done on small tides, but a lot of the boatmen reckon it doesn't matter because even though you're swimming further, you're still getting swept. But, um, but yeah, my, my theory is that the smaller the tide, um, the less you're swimming and the more likely you're going to land on that, that uh, closest tip of France, that Cape Grenade. Yeah, okay. And is the window of opportunity you speak about, is that tide or is that weather or is it both? Oh, no, you gen- generally get a one-week's window, Anthony. So it's a luck of the draw. So when you get there, you just hope that, that you get some good uh, days in that window. Right. Uh, so it, that's, that's the uh, – because it's a very popular uh, industry, so there's a lot of people booked up. So, um, so they can book up to four people in a week and it, you get numbered one to four. So if you're number four, you've got to wait for the previous three people to either swim or – or to say, I'm not taking that day, pass it on to the next person. Yeah, right, okay. So it's, a, it's a big industry, so um, it's, it's getting harder to get those good windows because you, you want to get a number one spot, and, yeah. and, and I believe the smaller tide. But yeah, the boatmen think it doesn't matter with the tide size. And with your training for that, were you doing anything other than swimming, or was it just swimming that was formed all of your training? Oh, when I was younger, when I first uh, did my single, I was just swimming, um, like, when I was when I was real skinny, I was doing you know up to 120k a week. Uh, that's right. why I struggled to put weight on as well. Yeah. Uh, then the next year I cut it back in half, so I was doing about 60k a week and eating a lot more, so I could get fat. Uh, oh, yeah. But then when I did my double crossing, I'd started doing gym work, uh, which I never never used to do. So so now I do I add the weights in the last kind of uh, 10 15 years. I've started doing more gym work as well. Yeah, okay. And the double crossing, the conditions there were horrendous as well, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. There were, um, the, the first way, because I was going for a record for the triple, uh, so we just didn't get the window. We, we actually had a few false starts, so we went down there and the boatman got the last report and said, sorry, it's not looking swimmable. Come, we'll talk again tomorrow. And so you're basically on standby. And I was actually coaching another person who, was, who sponsored me, uh, Richard Payne, who uh, swam the same time as me, but on a different boat, obviously. And he took 22 hours to do a single crossing. Uh, wow. He basically, he became the oldest Australian at the time to, to get across. And I did the double when he did the single. Um, and he was the only other person to get across. I think there were seven other people that didn't get across that, that night. So it was really, it was really rough the first way. It calmed down the second way, but I just got beat up uh, trying to smash through the waves going the first way. Cause I was, on a time schedule, I was trying to, you know, swim quick and yeah. end up because doing nine 20. hours. I just did just under 20 hours, 19 hours, 55, which I was, you know, I was hoping to be back in 15, 16 hours. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, just uh, didn't get conditioned. So, but that's just, that's just how it is in the channel. You know, that happens to a lot of people and um, yeah, it's part of the appeal of your channel. Yeah, okay. Well, let's put the channel together with a run and a, and a ride and talk about the arch to arc, which is just like it's, staggering when you read about it so you're going from london to paris and to do that you're running 140k you're swimming the english channel and then you've got a 290k ride ahead of you um so from the marble arch in london and um you get to the arc de triomphe in paris so let's start again what really interests me with this is your training when you've got three massive endurance events to train for how did you fit that into your day and did you pay more attention to one discipline than another so how did you go about your training to prepare for that yeah i i I did focus more on um on my running and also swimming for that because the bike even though it's a hard ride like it's 290k and it's a really hilly course um if you get to the bike you basically you know unless something terrible goes wrong you know you're going to get there so right it's trying to nail the run and, and nail the swim, and that really sets up the whole whole race. I mean, if, if if you're real bike fit, you might ride half an hour faster if you're doing you know 600k a week than 300k a week, which isn't significant in the in the scheme of the whole event. Because uh, with basically with with the event, you backlog from the high tide for the start of the run. So I backlog 24 hours from the high tide which basically meant whatever I run under 24 hours is my rest period, but the clock doesn't stop. 
So you've got to work out how aggressive you're going to be with your turnaround. So if yeah. I, if I'd run 25 hours, I've missed the tide and I've stuffed, stuffed the whole event up. Or even if I ran 22 hours, you know, and you only get two hours rest, not enough rest. So, so you've got to work out how aggressive you are and how hard you're going to take the run. And then, cause then you've got to be able to swim the channel. Uh, and then you're allowed up to 12 hours rest after the swim, but the clock doesn't stop. Yes. So, so it's a real, you've got to work out. Yeah. Your calculation. If you're going for a record. Yeah. If you're going to finish, it's still hard, but it's not obviously as hard as if you're trying to break a record cause you've got to be a lot more aggressive. Um, so yeah, so I backlogged 24 hours. I ended up running 15:52. So that meant my rest period was in between that. But even then, it's like that's taking into time. You got to go back to the hotel, have a feed, then you got to get up. You got to be back at the boat um, in Dover an hour before. The boat actually takes you out to the beach you're leaving from, which is like a half an hour trip. Then you swim in. You jump off the boat, swim in 50 meters to shore. Get, get fully out of the water, then you can start your swim. So it's a whole process. It's not like you yeah. just, you know, you finish and you're straight at the beach where you're going to take off the next day. So that rest period includes includes doing all that. So, so yeah, so it's a real calculation um, how aggressive you're going to be. And I end up having a real tough window. So uh, I was on a big tide. I was on a big spring tide because uh, that was the only one free a year out when we booked it. And we ended up having a, we had high, high force winds because we were the back of a hurricane from America. So everyone that was booked to swim the channel that week cancelled. So no relay team went out, no solo swimmer went out. And I'd run 140K before. So I only got that window because the boatman trusted my swimming capability because I did double crossing with him in bad conditions. Yeah. And with the arch to arc, I was allowed to wear a wetsuit. So with English Channel, you're not allowed to wear a wetsuit. With the arch to arc, you can wear a wetsuit. So the, so the boatman backed me to, to have a crack at the channel in those terrible conditions, you know, when it was wind against tide. Um, but then even during the run, I got lost going through London. So I ran an extra four or five K, you know, I'm thinking, oh, everything's conspiring against me. You know, I'm, I got lost. I've never run 140 K. Uh, everyone. So did that weigh on your mind mentally? Like when you. Yeah, it did for a while. So it's trying to get those things out of your head. Like, so I'd never run 140K. Then I, I got lost going through London, so I had to run an extra 4 or 5K. I'm running into um, an English channel where every solo swimmer and relay team is cancelled. You know, so you start thinking, oh, geez, maybe it's not meant to be. But, um, but I got through it, and um, it was a very tough experience. And, yeah, I um, got through it and got the record, so I was, I was wrapped. We'll get, we'll get on to that um, soon, the record. But uh, just back to your training for a second, can you give us, an, like, an average day or a couple of days at the peak of your training leading into that would have involved how much time on the bike, how much in the pool, how much running? Yeah, so what I was doing, the Saturday would be my big run day. So I would run 70K on the concrete uh, and then the Sunday would be my big swim day where I generally I'd do 120 hundreds in the pool. So I'd do a 12 K swim. Yep. Uh, the other days, Monday to Friday, I would, I would try and do four things. So I would generally do an hour, an hour and a half barefoot run on the grass. Uh, I would do gym work. I would swim six K and I, and I'd bike about 40 K uh, on the, mostly on the gym bike just for time management. Cause yep. I was working, I was swim coaching in the morning and then swim coaching at night. So they were massive days. So I would either go to the, the gym first, do my weights, then jump on the gym bike. Then I'd go straight to uh, what we call Dendy Park, which is the grass oval. And I'd run an hour and a half around the grass grass oval barefoot just to strengthen my, my foot muscles. Yeah. Uh, that was a theory of mine. And then um, except the Sunday, the Saturday when I was doing my long run, I'd, I'd do it in a racing flat on the concrete. So I wasn't barefoot for my arm um, from a 70K run. Yeah, then I'd head to the pool and uh, the outdoor 50 metre pool and uh, do approximately 6K. So that was generally my Monday to Friday. Um, the Sunday was my big sw- bigger swim day and the su- Saturday was my bigger run day. So it's interesting, isn't it? That I mean, this is where it's such a, and it must be particularly when you first go in, so it's such an unknown because you can't, you're saying you're running 70Ks, your long run in training, mm. but the run's going to be 140. Um, yeah. And, you know, the swim's 33 and you can't train anywhere near that. Same with the ride. Like it must, again, did that, and well, I want to get on to, because again, people talk about you as being so mentally tough, but... Do, I don't know about that. <laughs> Do you go in with doubt though, thinking, God, I've only run 70 Ks and I've got to run 140 and then swim the channel? Like, how does your mind deal with that sort of thing? 
Oh, absolutely. The run was a big, big unknown. I'd, I'd worked on a few things. So uh, as I said earlier in the interview, when I, when I first started, I did jump to straight to 70K straight away. I started at 50K and um, I ended up walking home because I hadn't run for years. So I, so I, was, I was starting the running again. Didn't think and 50 up, was t- too much for your first run back? Oh, well, I'd done, you know, 10K <laughs> and things before then, but that was my first long run. And I ended up walking home. And then I started experimenting with different size runners, you know, like the big thick runners, the Brooks Beast and all that. And it did, no matter what runner I had at 50K, I was getting, you know, the sledgehammered quads. So then I started, I got on the internet and started Googling um, some ultra marathon runners and, there's a guy called Giannis Kouros who used to win the Sydney to Melbourne ultra marathon run. He's like a super famous yep. uh, used to endurance beat Cliff, runner. Cliff Young, didn't he? Yeah, he, well, he ended up beating Cliff and he was a freak. He won everything. Like He held the world record for 24 hours round the track, 303 kilometres. I'm not sure if he still holds it, but he, he, I copied him. He ran like a duck, so he ran with his knees out, uh, his toes pointing out. So I tried running like that. didn't work for me. I actually contacted him, but he was living in Greece. And uh, he was he had he wasn't really science based, so he was all spiritual. So he he basically would uh, feed on bacala, which is a Greek sweet. Right. And and he didn't care what runners he wore. He'd wear sandals sometimes. Um, wow. He he had out of body experiences, like he said, would who would see himself running. He would float out of his body and see himself running, and you know, do poetry in his head and write music in his head. So he was a real uh, really out there character. And then I found uh, Dan Canassis on the internet who was winning the 100K trail runs in America. And um, on the internet, they were saying that he would do, would wear minimalist shoes, would wear the Nike free, and he would do barefoot training. So he would set, uh, set his office up during the day where he'd walk around bare feet and have no chairs in his office. So he was always on his feet barefoot. And then he would do barefoot training as he's running. And then when he actually raced, he would wear the Nike free, which was a, you know, a very light, minimalist yeah. runner. So that's when I started doing the barefoot stuff during the week on the grass. And, I, and then I'd walk around pool deck with no shoes on. So, um, and did you have I'd any start- problems? Sorry, did you have any problems? Like, as from a physio perspective, we'd say, mm. well, there's a recipe for disaster going into minimalist shoes and doing that amount of activity. So, did you, how'd you find the minimalist footwear? Oh, awesome. In, so, in the end, I ended up um, doing the 70K training runs in the A6DS racing flat, which technically is a 5K runner, yep. you know, and, and I, I did the arch at about 98 kilos. So, so the two, on, on paper, that didn't add up. Uh, but I, I put it all down to the, uh, the barefoot stuff. And also I kind of developed a, a running style that uh, more of a shuffle. So, because I found when I got tired, my, my legs came through really low. So I started trying to practice that on the grass. So I'd try and bring my foot through as low as I could with my arms low. Um, I had a few trips to doing that. I remember yeah. I did one seventy K run. It was I was I left at three thirty in the morning, it was dark. And four or five K in, I was I had the uh, the music going and I, I tripped I tripped up <laughs> on the ground, look up, blood all over my elbow, blood on my knees, still got sixty five K to go. I'm thinking, oh geez, what a goose, lucky no one saw. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I tried to bring my my foot through as low as possible and keep my arms really low. So People would see me sometimes and think, geez, you look tired. You must have been a long way in. I'm like, no, nah, it's 20K in. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I worked on different things like that and I found that was very effective. What did you wear in the race, in the run of the Arch The ACDS racing flat. Oh, you were, I, yeah. um, I probably had three or four pairs and I um, would swap them every, say, 40, 50K and then I'd swap the socks and I'd, vas- I'd put heaps of Vaseline on, on the socks and on my toes. So every 40, 50K, I'd just get new socks on. The crew would, unfortunately, the crew had to do that for me. <laughs> Not a good job because, you know, you, you start getting so tight, you can't reach your feet. So they would, they would vest my feet up and I'd already have pre-vest up socks that looked horrible. So I'd put new socks on, put a new pair of uh, A6Ds racing flat every probably 40, 50K and probably had, yeah, four pairs, I reckon. It obviously worked because you did, you, you know, I think you, you'd said you had the goal of 16 hours, you did 15.53 and, you know, when you mm. break that down there, you know, your first marathon split was 4.09 and second was 4 hours 30, third was 4.48, mm. so um, pretty amazing times. Um, that was over... the extra 5K though. Sorry? <laughs> oh, one. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, I got lost going through London, so that was, yeah, it was a big punch in the head when when that happened but uh, you know you talk about your crew and your crew are obviously uh critical and i watched a couple of little videos leading into this interview and you know in one of them i see they're literally 
I'm pretty sure it was after the run though, literally carrying you into a bath and I just see you lying there fully clothed in the, in the bath. And so that, that night, how mm. much rest, you know, sleep, what was it like the night after the run and what was it like your first few steps out of bed the next morning? Oh, it was horrible. I, could, I had real, um, I had a bad experience when I, my body kind of shut down when I got, got back uh, to where we were staying. So that's when they had to carry me up the stairs, put me in a bath. Yeah. Yeah, I felt good when I finished the run because I probably walked a lot of the last 20, 30K because I was ahead of schedule. So I was trying to save my legs for, for, the, for, for my energy, not so much my legs, try and get my energy back and eat more that last uh, 20, 30K of the run because I, I, was, I was ahead of schedule. So when I finished the run, I didn't feel too bad. But then it was probably a half an hour drive back to where we were staying and then when I got out, my body shut down and they had to carry me up the stairs and give me a bath. And I kind of came good again, uh, but it was broken sleep, kind of like sleeping on an airplane where you, you can't sleep properly because you're, yeah, right. you're that tired and it's a contradiction. You, you feel tired, you feel sleepy, but you can't sleep because you're so sore and uh, you're getting cramps everywhere. And then uh, I woke up the next morning and I felt quite sick. I'd struggled to get my breakfast down. So I, I downed probably four litres of water. I just kept trying to flush it all out of me. Yeah, the, the, the channel was a, a real shocking, uh, shocking day. So, so, but yeah, so I remember the first two hours, I was, it was really awkward chop. I was getting ragdolled. It just felt like your body was all, all different angles. It wasn't the kind of rough conditions where you punch through, then you feel good. It was like, oh, my body was on all weird angles and I couldn't keep my brain still. So I was, I was getting very frustrated. And I said to the boatman, I was hoping, for, I was wanting a bit of love. I said to the boatman, I was just going to get any better. And uh, expecting a bit of love, and he goes, "I thought you were a swimmer. Swim." <laughs> so I thought, "Oh, fair enough. I'm being a bit of a sook here." <laughs> so that got me going again, and yeah. So there were a lot, a lot of ups and downs. It's yeah. a real mental, mental challenge, and I definitely wasn't mentally strong my way. I, I tell you that. It oh, just, good. Uh, Time to take a short break and reflect back on our most recent podcast with super Australian long course triathlete, Luke Bell. Luke covered so many great points regarding his achievements, his goal setting in events, uh, the injuries he's been through. And he took us through a couple of his tougher events and there was just so much unbelievable information that you can really only get from someone who's done what he has done. It's well worth a listen, but here's a small snippet of what he had to say about some advice an old swimming coach gave him that is stuck with him forever consistency over time is key um my my swim coach told me early days and it's one I, I've, I've nearly adopted and stolen from him now i think um, but buddy portia um goes he just said three rules be consistent or don't get sick don't get injured be consistent if you get sick you can't be consistent if you get injured you can't be consistent it all comes back to consistency. So for my entire career, they were, you know, I'd always come back to, right, don't get sick, don't get injured, be consistent. Tick, tick, tick. And then generally you'll end up racing well over time. So if you want to catch up on episode 15 with Luke Bell, jump across to the Perform, Prevent, Recover page and you'll be able to download that episode and everything else we've done. But for now, let's get back to the Arch to Arc Enduro Man event and swimming the English Channel with John Van Wyss. Well, there's a story, and again, you can tell me whether it's true or not, that the, you know, the conditions were so bad that morning that you were the only madman anywhere near the beach and that the police over there actually thought you were an illegal immigrant swimming away. Like, is, is there any truth in that? Yeah, that, that's a true story, Anthony. I actually didn't know. I was, so, like I said, the boat, you go back to the Dover Harbour and the boat takes you to the beach that he thinks is the best beach to leave from with the tide, going by your speed. So... So we jump in the boat. We go around to, uh, I think it was Shakespeare's Beach. The boat can't go all the way in because it's too shallow. So you jump off the side, then you swim in that last 50, 100 metres to the shore. And then you get out and then you wait for the siren to go, then you can take off. So I'd swim in and because I'd run 145k, I looked terrible swimming in. <laughs> I struggled to get out of the water because the waves were hitting me. My legs were sore. You're on pebbles. You're not on sand. Yep. So people walking their dog thought I was an illegal immigrant. I'd swum across. <laughs> so they called the cops. And I didn't know I've jumped in and swum and, the, and there's, we've got two crews. So the crew that was on the beach got interrogated by the police and, and uh, we actually got it on film. Um, 
And that was great exposure for me because that got worldwide coverage. And, and, you know, that was, you know, you couldn't have planned it better. That actually got us some real good uh, coverage yeah, right. for our sponsors. And it was a real funny story, you know, that uh, this silly Australian, you know, swam in the beach. He looked drunk, you know, when he, when he got out of the water because he was so tired. It looked yeah. like I'd swum, swum, swum across from France. <laughs> so, yeah, it was pretty funny. But I didn't know about it till I actually, when I finished the swim, I was so tired. Uh, one of my crew was trying to tell me and I just, it didn't make sense in my head. So I'm thinking, oh, yeah, yeah. And then later when I got home, I had um, emails from all around the world saying, can you do an interview? Yeah, right. Uh, but it was too late. So I straight away got on the internet, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, it was too late. The story, yeah, I'd lost all momentum because it was yeah, probably, right. probably a week or two late. But I, I had, you know, people from all, from all different places around the world saying, oh, can we interview you about, about that story? So, yeah, so it was very good exposure for me. Um, and tell me the swim, like, again, there's vision of you um, swimming in, like, pitch black um, during that race. And, like, God, I know I'm freaked when I'm knee-deep in the bay at Bowie when it's after dark <laughs> that something might bite me. Like, does just the blackness and darkness get you? Do you think, I don't know, I presume it's too cold for anything to be in the water to eat you, but do you think about that when you're swimming in the dark? No, it, I understand what you're saying, but the actual um, swimming in the dark in the channel is actually quite, quite peaceful. If you've got, you're basically following, the, they've got a spotlight in the water and you're basically following that spotlight. Um, and it's really, yeah, it's quite, um, you, get, you get into a bit of a trance. Obviously, I, I struggle because of the rough waves, but I've swum in the dark before with a channel. It, I actually prefer it, except you don't get the sun on your back, which is nice, you know, the heat of the sun. But yeah, if you get nice conditions and, and, and you're at night, it can be quite peaceful, actually, because there's nothing in the channel that's going to eat you. Yeah. There's only big oil tankers and strong currents, but there's nothing, you know, that's nobody's ever been eaten by a shark in the channel. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's quite a, yeah, it's, that, you don't have to worry about that. So, yeah, I, yeah, I understand a lot of people, uh, a lot of people that, to actually practice training in the night because of that reason or they go because it could be I've freaky of, yeah i've heard of a lot of people that actually do train in the night for that reason but yeah. i find i find it very very peaceful because uh, you're just basically following the light and everything else around you is, is pitch black yeah okay now another thing that comes to mind too is you you spoke earlier that you put on uh, over 20ks for one of your english channel swims but with this mm. one you couldn't really afford to put on 20Ks, could you, when you're doing a 140K run? Like, how did you approach mm. the, the, the weight, the need to have some insulation in the swim versus the fact you've got to pound your body away for 140Ks first? Yeah. Well, so, so the beauty of this one is I was allowed to wear a wetsuit, which is right. a massive game changer. Okay. I actually still got cold the back half. Of, when I say cold, nothing sinister. I just got, got cold. I was uncomfortable. Because I'd spent so much energy in the run and, and I was fighting the current and the waves. So as, as you uh, lose energy, you don't have the energy to fight the cold. So that's when the cold starts creeping in. But yeah, I, I did the event at probably 97, 98 uh, kilos. So I'd done a lot more gym work, um, which was hard because when you're doing long runs, you know, you, you lose muscle. But I was trying, not that I was Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I was trying to um, do gym work most days while I was doing the heavy training and try and keep some sort of uh, muscle on. And I found, you know, we're doing the barefoot training and the shuffle style that I could run a really good long distance, even at 98 kilo. So yeah, I was, with my channel background, cause I'd done a double crossing, you know, the channel with no wetsuit. I, I was confident in my, in my channel swimming ability with the wetsuit, even though everybody, everybody had canceled on that window, all the solar swimmers had canceled. So for me, it was just getting through the run and, and getting enough sleep to take the channel on. And yeah. uh, people so worried about, oh, people were worried for me about the channel swim. But in my head, I was, I was, you know, I had a few sookie moments in the channel, but I was confident that I could get across even in those, in, even in a bad window because of my background yeah, with, okay. and so, with the wetsuit. So you found the run tougher in, in that event? Was the run tougher than the swim? Oh, no, nah, the swim was tough too because... The first, the first bit of the swim, probably the first four or five hours was wind against tide. And I had real, not massive waves, but really awkward waves where, like, as I said before, I couldn't get a rhythm. You just feel like you're getting ragdolled. Like your brain yeah. is just shaking in your head because your body's in all weird angles. So it was, you just couldn't switch your brain off and, and get in a rhythm and go to sleep. Um, so it was a very awkward swim. And then at the end of the swim, I missed the tide. So the last 400 metres of the swim took me half an hour and I was yeah, sprinting. Right. And that's why when I got out of the water, I was, I was, you know, I was spent. 
Um, but the run, I had some tough moments too. So, you know, the whole thing was hard. Even the, I thought the bike would be, the bike would be easy, but we still had the big headwinds and there were, there were 10 big climbs. So I, I didn't have the right gearing, nice. you know, but, but basically once you got to the bike, you know, you knew that if you just stay upright, you're eventually going to get there. The bike's a bit, you know, less, uh, still a long ride. Yeah, but you should make It's really it. just yeah. getting through the, um, you know, the run and swim and, you know, on pace to get the record, hopefully. So, yeah, so the run yeah, was okay. really tough. The swim was was uh, was really tough because it was a big tide and I had wind against tide and I missed the tide at the end. So I ended up swimming 54K on my um, GPS. Um, yeah, so the swim took me 12 and a half hours. And I, in my head, I was thinking I could do the swim in eight hours. Yeah, I thought I thought even though I was tired with the wetsuit, because I always thought if I had good conditions in the channel, I could do, you know, seven hours or under without a wetsuit. Yeah, um, yeah so... So um, yeah, okay. I was hoping to do eight, around eight hours with the wetsuit for the swim. I ended up doing 12 and a half hours. Yeah, so yeah. It, was, it was a tough swim. Yeah. Well, if I, I, I spoke about the vision of you sort of being carried into the, into the bath after the run. Well, when I saw the vision of you getting out of the water and going to the car, if ever there's a definition of the walking dead, I reckon you were <laughs> like your, your eyes were rolled in the back of your head. You, you looked unconscious. Like, can you mm. remember that part of getting out of the water and being assisted to the car? Cause you just looked in so much trouble. Yeah. It looked, it looked a lot worse than it was. I was, I was, I was very, I was very tired obviously because of that last half an hour where I was against the tide where I had to gut myself to get in. Um, so I was basically swimming as hard as I could to swim that last 400 metres to, to, to get to the rocks and get out of the water. So, because I landed on these rocks near the lighthouse, so I was basically following, looking at the light and just trying to get to there. And I remember the boatman goes, you've got 500 yards. And uh, half an hour later, I'm still, I'm still going. So, you know, even 10 metres out, I'm thinking, I'm trying to do a straight arm under the water, singing, please just let me touch a rock. And I was sprinting to get in and yeah. after running 145k, you know, just before and, having to push through the waves that that's what made me so tired yeah, having to sprint okay. in. So when I came out, I, I really just wanted to, I just had enough energy on to lift my legs up to get to the car and, you know, get back to the hotel. And it was funny. We got back to the hotel and uh, there was no elevator. So <laughs> it was a funny scene where I, I go, is there an elevator? And, and they go, no, no. Okay. I go, Oh, if I started swearing, <laughs> I had to climb up these two flights of stairs, carry me up the stairs. And I'm like, Oh, it was just, it was like a comedy show, like Fawlty Towers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot worse than it looked. I just, I just needed um, to lie down and get some food into me and, yeah. you know, recharge the battery. Oh, I'm glad you say that because it did look pretty bad. But um, let's get on to the ride then. And, and look, you know, nothing in this race was easy, which is, again, when we talk about the world record, makes it even more amazing. But, um, you know, headwind and the weather, you know, wasn't brilliant. And it's not really a beach road continuous ride you're doing nah. in this final 290Ks, is it? Nah. No, I was expecting, um, you know, I saw, I saw some of the previous bike times and they were all really slow. And I thought, gee, they must just be exhausted. Well, they're not very good bike riders, but it's just, it's a real brutal bike course. You can't ride quick. Like there's probably 10 big climbs because uh, you go on the back roads, you're not going the normal highways. So, so, and I still had the headwinds coming into me. So I didn't have the right gearing on the bike. So I'm going up these hills with a, you know, super slow cadence into the wind. And I remember the first uh, 60K took two hours and I'm thinking, sorry, the first, it's, yeah, so my first 50K took two hours. And I'm thinking, gee, this is ridiculous. How slow is this? <laughs> and, um, and we had our first stop at uh, McDonald's in Boulogne. And Edgar Edgar, who runs the event, goes, oh, whoever gets to this point always stops at McDonald's and, and right. has a feed here. So I, so I sat down and, you know, gathered my th thoughts again and think, geez, I've got to push hard into this wind. And, uh, but, yeah, I, I really I didn't have the right gearing because uh, I wouldn't tell us the schematics of the bike course. So I didn't think it'd be oh, that okay. hilly. Yeah, so so like I said, so if I had my time again, I'd get you know better gearing and hopefully wouldn't have those big headwinds. But yeah, there's some big climbs here. It's a tough, tough bike ride. But basically, if you, if you do get to the bike ride, you know, unless you're going to get you know ten punctures or or have a severe injury or fall off your bike, you know, you're gonna you're gonna get there. Just just keep pedaling. So. Can you remember like uh, I mean the the final bit of such an extraordinary event? Like I've sat at the Arc de Triomphe and been eating pizza and drinking beer and it was fabulous. But when you were coming down the Arc towards the Arc, what can you, did you appreciate what you'd done? Were you just exhausted? Were you just thankful you made it? What was your emotion in that oh, last stretch? 
It was a lot of relief, Anthony, really, because yeah. yeah, it's a lot of preparation. And like I said it's a, it's a bit of an unknown doing something like that because you can't fully train, you know, those distances in training, and so you can never simulate the race, the actual event. So it was good because I knew I was at probably you know two hours before I knew I was going to get the record because I only you know had a couple of hours to go and and um, basically with the lead car, if he gets stopped at the lights, you have to stop. So, so there were a lot of stopping as we went into Paris. So, so the last few hours weren't that stressful. I had time to think about it and kind of, it was more of a sense of relief really, but I had two hours where I knew, okay, unless I fall off the bike, you know, I break my leg or something serious. I'm going to, I'm going to get there. So yeah, it was, it was, it was really good the last two hours. Uh, but it was more, more of a sense of relief in the end than, uh, than, you know, joy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the bike split in the end was 14 hours, seven minutes. And yeah, it's so, terrible. Uh, well, it was a new world record, you know, 61 hours, 27 minutes. And you beat the old world record by 12 hours and 12 seconds. Is that the biggest smashing of a world record in history? Like normally we're breaking, breaking world records by seconds in many sports, but that's just unbelievable. Oh, yeah, but there's a lot, there's so many variables with this race that, you know, two people never have the same uh, conditions. So it's such a long event. You can cut a lot of time off. And it's still, it's still, you know, like people are still working it out. They're trying to cut the rest down now. And, you know, if somebody does it in this time, then the next person, they use that as the blueprint. And yeah, so, oh, right. this person did it off this turnaround. And so that's what's kind of happened is, um, you know, because it, it the sport hasn't been, the event hasn't been around for 50 years. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's an unknown thing. How much risk do you take? And once one person shows that you can do it, then the next person goes, well, he's done it. I can do it off this little rest. I might cut more rest off here. So, yeah, so that's probably why, the, you know, I could take that much off it because the previous guy was probably told, oh, no, you can't run this quick or you can't have this much rest. So, yeah, okay. I, it, I still think um, it can come down a fair bit more. Sure. And I suppose it leads into, you know, when you read the literature of the arch to arc and they say that the first transition, so the night after the run and or the swim are the ones where people, if they're going to pull out, pull out. Now, you did go back twice and those were the yeah. transitions that got you. Like what, ha what happened in those two? Oh, so... Uh, the last time I went, I, um, I ended up having a 30, 30 degree day. Oh, it wasn't God. supposed to be 30 degrees and I'm hopeless in the heat. And, um, I was trying to go off a 20 hour turnaround this time, not where the first time I went off a 24 hour turnaround. Right. And I felt a lot more comfortable. I was hoping to run two or three hours quicker because I, I was, you know, I'd done a lot more 70 K runs. I did the arch the year or two years before. So I knew I could run that distance. I'd, I'd really develop my shuffling style and more barefoot running. So I was really confident in my running. And I was halfway in about five hours. So I was well ahead of schedule and I wasn't even running that hard. Uh, but then I started getting uh, a bit sleepy and I didn't realize why. And that was because I was just getting a bit, a bit of heat, heat exhaustion. So I ended up walking a lot of the back half of the run and I ended up uh, running 17 hours something instead of, you know, you know, 13 hours, which I was hoping to run. And, um, by the time I got to the hotel, basically I only had an hour's turnaround where I had to be back to Dover Harbour. Oh, wow. So it wasn't enough rest. So uh, I, I said to the, it was a beautiful swim day. It was 30 degrees and flat. So it would have been a ripper swim. So I said to the, the organiser, can I go the next tide, which was 10 hours later, um, which would have meant I lost an extra 10 hours. But I still thought, well, because the weather's so good, you know, I might be able to make it, make it back up. But because somebody had died before I'd done it, maybe a month before, they were very worried. So they said, well, you've got to pass a medical if you're going to you know, do the swim, even though it's 10 hours later. So it was, it was the banking holiday, so nothing was open. So we had to uh, find a doctor that would open up for us. So we found one in London that would open up for us. So we had to drive all the way to London. And I was, I was basically, I couldn't get any drinks down. Just the thought of a Gatorade would have made me, you know, vomit. Uh, so I was, I, I really just needed drips. I just needed fluid back in me. And we got to the doctor and he, you know, took my pulse. My pulse was too high and, and I had too much blood in my urine. So he basically recommended for me, you know, Edgar Edgar come with us. And he basically said, no, I don't pass you. So I wasn't allowed to start the swim. Fair but enough, anyway, it wouldn't have mattered because I would have lost 10 hours and I would have looked back and I wouldn't have been happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then the other year I tried it, which was two years ago, and um, one of my crew sat next to a sick person on the plane, oh, and he no. got sick. 
and then I got sick next, and I, it was one of the worst flus I've had. I was I was bedridden, sweating, heat, heat cold. I shouldn't have. I should have gone straight home. Yeah, but basically, right. I thought I'll, I'm here. You know, <laughs> we kept it hidden that I was sick. And I was I was struggling um, to just get out of bed. And I, I started the run, and I tried. I put it back. I was going to go off a 20 hour turnaround. I put it back to 24 hours, which is what I tried. Which what I was successful with the first arch. And I tried to go start off really, really slow, which is basically all I could do. So I took off at the pace that I'd normally finish off and just tried to hopefully get through the run in 22 hours and see if I could, could do it. But halfway into the run, Edgar goes, you're not even going to make the turnaround, mate. You're kidding yourself. So we had, we had to pull a pin. So yeah, basically, yeah, I, just, uh, yeah, I, just, yeah. I was, just wasn't healthy. And then I was, I was trying to go again um, last year. And I, I got injured and um, got a slight tear in my Achilles. So, yeah, so I was hoping to go last year, but, yeah, did my Achilles. So it's been a, it's been a, a bit of a comedy ever since. Gee, it shows, doesn't it, that, you know, we say to, you know, a lot of our patients that the, the hardest part sometimes getting to the start line. Yeah. Get to the well, start see, line yeah, healthy, give yourself a chance. Yeah, so last year I was, I was seven weeks out and I was going really well. I had Achilles tendonitis, but once I got running, it would go away. Um, and I was doing the distance of the arch arc a week. That was my, so I was running 140k a week. I was swimming about 40. I was, I was riding about 300 plus my, plus my gym work. And, uh, it was a Monday. So I'd run a 70k on the Saturday and, um, I, I, I was running around Dendy park barefoot and I thought oh, I'm, I'm going to step it up. And I, I tried, I tried to do too much. Got, got a little tear in my Achilles started doing water running thinking oh, i'll still be right i'll just keep i'll just do water running i've got this massive amount of base in me i'll just water run you know for the next six weeks before i leave uh but i i was a week to go and a, the lady who was going to take over my squads while i was away could see i was still limp she goes go get a mri so i got the mri um got the results back on the monday i was going to leave the sunday and uh the physio said oh it looks all good so I said, oh, this is great news. So the next day being the Tuesday, I tried to run oh. and I couldn't run. I, was, I pulled up really sore. I remember working at night and I was limping, you know, around pool deck. Got the scan sent off to a friend who's a, who's a surgeon and he goes, nah, it's no good. Then I got the report back from the MRI people and it said, oh, look, you've got a tear, little tear in your Achilles. You've got a crack in your heel. You've got tendonitis, oh, wow. which I knew that. So I had to make a decision because I was leaving, I was booked to leave that Sunday, you know, and I'd, and it was the first time ever I was going to fly business class. Um, I spent five grand on the accommodation, 10 grand on the entry, done all this training. I'm thinking, oh God. So the Friday being, um, being uh, two days before I was going to leave on the Sunday, I uh, put some hill raises in my, in my, um, my race flats yeah. and strapped my Achilles up, got on the Nurofen, tried to run around the block and I struggled to run 5K. So I thought, oh, I can't, I'm kidding myself. I'm going there for a record. I got no hope. So I, I had to pull the pin and I got my flight back, but that was about it. Uh, yeah, lost gosh. all this money. And then a year later, I've still got the tendonitis. So it was a good call. So, so I made the right call, but it, yeah, I, I, I overdid my training and got carried away. And, you know, yeah. if I had a coach, you know, I wouldn't have done that. But when you're training, coaching yourself, you get emotionally involved and yeah, look, it's, it's interesting to hear, you know, even at, at your level, and it's good to, to get through because we say to our patients that, you know, so many tendinopathies and bone stress injuries are, are training error. So just out of interest, mm. how, how much did you change your training? Like you said, you stepped it up. Was it much? Like, do you look back and think, wow, that was a bit silly? Yeah, it was because you should only increase, you know, by technically 10%. Uh, and I stepped it right up and, um, yeah, I, like I said, I was already, you know, doing that kind of training. I already had the tendonitis in both Achilles and I was, you know, extremely slow and it just went on me. And, um, yeah. I remember I was thinking, oh no. And I, I, um, hobbled back to the car, drove back home and, and, uh, you know, I'm generally a positive person. So then I thought I'll just do water running, uh, instead. So I was doing like hour water runs and I stepped the swimming up a bit more and I did more riding. I thought I've got this massive base, so I should be right. But yeah, it, it never came good. And and now looking, I've still got the tendonitis. Yeah. You know, a year later. So. That's a bummer. So yeah, so it's my own fault. Learn from hindsight, I suppose. But um, hey, um, I just got a couple of questions to finish up with. Just just sort of general questions. Um, like 
when I look back at what you've done, like many of those events, you know, there's there's different things that come to mind. Pain, monotony and boredom, just like sheer exhaustion, bitter cold. Like what what's the toughest thing that you've found across all the events that you've done? What's what's the toughest thing you've had to deal with? Oh, good question. Well, you put me on the spot there. There's been a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask, what would you rather not have? Pain, boredom, exhaustion, cold? Oh, I mean, um, boredom's a... Yeah, I would say you never get bored. It's more just insecurities, I guess. You know, when you're doubting yourself, the self-doubts when things are going wrong. uh, That's a big... That's always a big thing. And like I said, I've had a lot of that where you're going well and, you know, with endurance sport, sometimes half an hour later, you can go from, you know, hero to zero where something comes up out of the blue. Uh, where you're feeling good and all of a sudden you're feeling terrible and you think, geez, I still got 80k to run and I feel terrible. My legs feel smashed, you know, or you got blisters on your feet and you're thinking, oh, I've got one million strides to go, you know, and I'll still have to swim and the bike. So I think the trick is not to think too far ahead. That's what I always try to do. So when I'm doing the run, I try not to think I've still got to swim in a bike, but yeah. you have moments where you do. And that's the worst time, you know, you just try and stay in the moment and get in the rhythm. And if you have a bad period, you try and get back in your rhythm and hope that the training you've done uh, gets you through it. But it's a lot of it's an unknown quantity. Um, yeah. So yeah, sure. Which is the worst. I don't know. I've had a lot of, uh, a lot of ups and downs and um, like I said, a lot of injuries where most of the time the injuries have been my own fault, you know, doing silly training where if I had a coach, I wouldn't have, you know, the coach wouldn't have advised it. And if I was coaching, you know, if I, if I was coaching someone else, I'd tell them not to do yeah, that. Exactly. I've done a lot of stupid things. What about recovery? Have you found, like a lot of people go to the bay to recover, you go to the bay to mm. train, but have you got any good recovery strategies that you regularly use after big training or big events? Oh, I, so I love, I love the cold. So I, I get in the bay in winter and yep. uh, I was actually doing a lot of the water running too when I was injured in the bay. So I thought I'll get my cold tolerance up while I'm doing my water running. So I would yeah, do right. like an hour in you know, seven, eight degrees, no wetsuit, um, uh, doing the water running and things like that. But I, I reckon the cold water is, is magnificent. It's so good for your health. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big believer in swimming, swimming in the bay in winter without the suit. And you've spoken um, about the Achilles, but having done what you've done swimming, have you had shoulder problems at all? Not really. I, I had a shoulder surgery years ago, but that was from doing too much gym work where I, I, I was getting sore and I kept doing the same exercise. So it was my own fault. And then when I had the surgery, that the um, the surgeon's actually a mate of mine I coach, and he goes, he was he couldn't believe how good my tendons were. He reckoned yeah, my tendons were amazing. like newborn babies. So yeah, so I think I'm lucky in that aspect. Um, that, um, yeah, I've, I've, I don't know. The injuries I've had have always been from being stupid. Not <laughs> if I'd kept things the same and used common sense, I'd, I probably wouldn't have been injured. You know, unless you fall off your bike or something like that. But yeah, it's always been you know doing something silly where I've overdone it. Tell me uh, now, like I, I see you down at the King Club with your big jar of lollies and a whole string of swimmers <laughs> behind you. So tell us well, a bit about... I can't about... rely on my coaching, so I use bribery. <laughs> <laughs> tell us a bit about what you're doing now and where, and you know, if anyone's interested in... So I know you do a lot of coaching, you know, where they can find you and what you're doing with your swimming squads. Yeah, oh, thanks, Anthony. Yeah, well, I do, do my squads morning and night at, uh, at the Swimrite Pool uh, in Chilp Street, uh, Cheltenham. That's where I've been for most of my, uh, probably 25 years now. Uh, but that's all closed at the moment, unfortunately, with, with the COVID. Yeah. Uh, and I've also had a couple of squads of pram pool Tuesday and Thursday morning. But that's close. The pool's reopened, but we're not allowed to do squads yet. So Have you so, had it yeah, in the bay? So I'm sitting in the bay um, just doing private clients and um, a small group at night, uh, at 4.15 at night. Um, I've got a group of about five. Uh, and I just do a few private clients in the morning. So I'm in the base swimming, swimming twice a day. But, yeah, it's yeah, all right. kind of stopped all the coaching because, you know, because of the pools aren't uh, – can't do the squads yet at the pools. So. Yeah, but hopefully that, like, that'll all kick off again once the pool opens, all your squads will kick off. Yeah, hopefully everything goes back to normal. Who, who knows at the moment, eh, how things are going. Yeah, yeah, we just don't know. But um, final question, and I'm almost a little bit scared to ask it, but what's next? What's, oh, the arch is still my goal. So I actually, um, I tried to get a window for next year, uh, but I can't get a window next year, which in, in hindsight is a blessing because I, I started running again and I've still got the tendonitis. And when I run, it doesn't go away, where a year ago it would go away once I started running. So I've got to build my tendon strength back up and 
Um, so I've stopped the running again. I'm just uh, doing my weights and doing doing my two swims a day. And I spoke to um to Edgar, who who's the boss of the Enduro Man. He's hoping I can get a window in 2022. So right. I just want okay. to try and nail it. I still feel, even though I'm getting, <laughs> I'm an old man. I still feel um, with this with this sport, it's not so much a, a speed thing. So I, I think I could uh, I could take you know a lot of time off if if I get everything right. I might be delusional, but uh, <laughs> I still think uh, I've got one more good good event in me with yeah. hopefully being the arch. Uh, look, that's fantastic. Well, look, um, I mean, what you've done already is just uh, absolutely amazing. And look, I really appreciate you joining us today and, and telling us what you've done. And there's some good insights uh, for everyone in there. So, um, yeah, really appreciate your time. And uh, look forward to maybe in a year or two chatting to you about the next, next Arch to Arc then. No worries. I appreciate it, Anthony. Thanks for having me on. No worries, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. Well, that's it for episode 16 and covers off another great story from one of our own local athletes who's made it big on the world stage. And it just gives you such great insight into what these events are like and it almost makes you feel like you've been on the journey with them. And I get the feeling somehow that this isn't the last we've heard of John's achievements. But for now... That's it from us. We've got so many more great topics in the pipeline. So please don't forget to hit the follow button to ensure you get notified as soon as the next edition is released. Thanks for listening.